0: This is The Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joseph Cohen from Queens College. And I'm Dan Morrison from Abilene Christian University. Today we meet Dan Hubner from the University of North Carolina, Greensboro. Dan is the author of Becoming Mead: The Social Process of Academic Knowledge with the University of Chicago Press. We're going to jump into the story of one of sociology's great classical theorists. You're not gonna to wanna to miss this. George Herbert Mead is a name that I haven't spoken or heard of in, you know, since my days in my classical theory class in graduate school. But there's no doubt the man is a towering figure in our discipline. He's widely credited as having founded symbolic interactionism, although I might get uh, my, my background knowledge straightened up today and a major contributor to philosophical pragmatism. His Mind, Self, and Society is a book that is said to have been written by his students' notes after his death. It's a mainstay of classical theory seminars everywhere. And for today's episode, we're going to take a deeper dive into this classical theorist with the help of Dan Hubner a professor of sociology at the University of North Carolina Greensboro Dan is the author of Becoming Mead The Social Process of Academic Knowledge with the University of Chicago Press welcome Dan Hubner
1: Thank you thank you very much for having me
0: So wait let's start off with some background on Mead and his Mind Self and Society Many of us haven't touched this material in years or in my case decades uh, and so we might benefit from a, a bit of a refresher. Can you might remind us, like, who's Mead and why is he important to sociology?
1: Sure. Yeah. So George Herbert Mead is an American philosopher, um, taught most of his career at the University of Chicago. Uh, as you said, he's a, a pragmatist by kind of orientation. And in sociology, he's known for this book, Mind, Self, and Society. And more generally, he's known for his theory of the social self for the social basis of meaning and thought, um, for a focus on communication uh, as kind of central to the way society works and those kinds of things. But as well, I'm sure we'll get into, there's a lot more avenues, both of his writing and a lot of misconceptions about him, I think, that have developed in the social sciences.
0: And he's credited with uh, starting, or at least being an originating figure of symbolic interactionism, right? Can you remind us well, what's symbolic interactionism?
1: Oh, yeah. Well, how long do you have? Um, no, but um, symbolic interactionism is a perspective I think that centers, if you want to take it at its at its face value, the interactive process, right? This process of interpreting one another. kind of central to what it is that society consists of Um, and there are a lot of different versions of that there's the you know kind of blue herbert bloomer version there's a more kind of structural version and there are you know let's say thousands of different little iterations of it um, in various forms Um, but that's kind of the core of it and as you said mead is often thought of as the kind of founder or maybe forerunner of this Process largely because his student Herbert Bloomer um, kept bringing him in as the kind of central figure um, in his lineage, huh. so to speak.
0: Huh. So, wait wait a minute. You're saying H- Herbert Bloomer. And a- 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 can you give us some background on Herbert Bloomer? Who was he? What
1: yeah, I saying? was just uh, teaching about Herbert Bloomer today in my uh, theory class. So, oh, good. Yeah an American sociologist who was trained at the University of Chicago and then taught there for much of his early career and then moved to Berkeley. Whereas I understand that he was kind of the central, um, almost founding chair of the, the sociology program at UC Berkeley.
2: Hmm.
1: Um, and he's known for a lot of things. And I think he's a bit, been especially reappraised after his life for things that um, I think people didn't realize he had written about, hmm. but the kind of core of his approach is this term and this this um, perspective, symbolic interactionism, that tries to, as I said, center this interpretive process in society. But, um, yeah, you know, he was also a football player and he was also... Um, apparently a male model at one point, and yeah. <laughs> you know, there's just lots of interesting little anecdotes that still get spread at these symbolic interactionist meetings about Herbert Bloomer. <laughs> He's kind of the, everybody's favorite um, subject of a story or, or something like that.
0: You know, it's interesting. I was uh, on the topic of, of how your students sort of uh, do a lot to ensure your legacy. I remember uh exchanging some words with who was doing the, is, uh, David Kalnitsky and Michael McCarthy, I think, are putting together a volume in honor of Eric Olin Wright. Hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I was saying, you know, it's it's very interesting. All the sociologists who we know of today are basically people who had students who sort of put the elbow grease into doing something to memorialize their mentors' work. I guess it, it's a testimony to how important your your students are to your legacy. Um,
1: yeah, I mean, that's central to why we even know who Mead was and why he's taught in sociology. I, I have a, a line that sometimes gets quoted from my book, which is, um, Mead's remembered in the discipline he didn't teach in for a book he didn't yeah. write. And <laughs> the fact that that's correct, that's true, yeah. only is true because he had students in sociology who kept bringing him back into the discipline. Dis- Kept bringing him back into the discussion, um, especially Herbert Bloomer, but but others we could talk about as well. So yeah, there's this kind of central place for um, the work done by students to memorialize their mentors, mm. um, which you know then raises questions about whose who whose uh, mentors get to carry the day, and I think it tells you a lot about. Institutional centrality and strength of yeah. social networks to really think about, you know, if everyone has a mentor, which are the ones we still remember?
0: Yeah, I mean, there's plenty of mentors, not naming right. any names, but there's plenty of <laughs> famous mentors whose own work I'm like, I don't even understand it. I'm like, this exactly. is not, this is not comprehensible uh, in any way. Should perform, but we'll save that for another episode, I guess.
1: So you you need people who um not only bring you back into the conversation, but um, interpret you in a way that other people can kind of grab hold of and find meaningful. Right? So there's this whole, there's a lot of this yeah. kind of rhetorical work of trying to make yourself relevant for so that other people will care.
0: Yeah. right or, or or perhaps reinterpret your work as something that well you know, could exactly. be accessed by a you know, rational mind or the...
1: Yeah. I'm not sure that there's ever not sure those are ever fully separable processes of <laughs> whether we're really saying just another version of what they said, or whether we're saying something different as if it were what they said.
2: Right. Uh, I'm really curious, uh, Dan Hubner, about Mead as a pragmatist, Mead as a public intellectual. That was part of the book that I was really fascinated by. And that's not the story that I had received in my, you know, a, a graduate training or just my understanding of of his work. Um, and so. You know, it's something that I'm interested in in my own academic work—the the relationship between pragmatism and symbolic interactionism, and and the, the broader discipline. Uh, and you know, right now there's a lot that sociologists could comment on. Um, but how do you, how did you think about or how did you understand what Mead was trying to do as a public intellectual in Chicago, uh, mm-hmm. primarily when he was teaching at U of C? Yeah,
1: I I think that in a sense we learn some of these figures the wrong way around. So if you hand someone the book mind, self, and society, then the, the instant image that you have, even if you know that this is based on lecture notes, maybe especially if you know this is based on lecture notes, is that this is a guy who spent his whole life sitting in ivory towers, or, or rather classrooms, just talking about ideas. And I think that that's just not, you know, that doesn't tell you anything about where these ideas came from. And for me, this is the kind of key element of thinking about someone like Mead as a public intellectual his ideas came from real engagement with reform projects. Um, so I think it's key to think about him as a public intellectual, Mead as a public intellectual. And so one of the things that I started to discover was a lot of his published work began as speeches in front of reform organizations. He was the president of the City Club of Chicago. He officially represented the territory of Hawaii at a national farmland conference. He gave speeches about um, advocating a representative and elected school board in front of thousands of people. I mean, this is someone who was really trying to make a difference on a huge Mm -hmm. range of what we would now think of as the progressive era reforms, education, juvenile justice, um, workers' rights, women's suffrage, international peace, social settlements, prison reform, public um, Public transit and public ownership of utilities—all are things that he had something to say in front of in front of the public, so to speak.
0: So is he like a, is he like the classical public sociologist in a way?
1: I mean, it, you know, they all kind of were in this pre-professional generation. I think that you know you can't think about people like Jane Adams or W.E.B. Du Bois or any of these people without thinking about them as necessarily also public intellectuals or public sociologists. In that sense, the work of you know, Borovoy, since you mentioned public uh, sociology, is an attempt to, I think, reclaim some of that pre-professionalism, that, that engagement with the world at large, so to speak, instead of just the classroom
0: for 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 those of us who aren't as strong in the history of sociology, which would be me, because uh, I'm sure Dan Morrison's pretty <laughs> up on stuff like, what do you mean by the pre-professional era of sociology?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, i I tend to draw the line starting about World War one. That's where where, for me, prior to World War one is a kind of pre-professional period and World War One and thereafter, really, after the war ends. Becomes a professionalization period, and that's especially true after World War II. Um, but even in the 1920s and 30s, you can see the development of, um, you know, standardized methodologies, um, more more emphasis on rigor and doing methods instead of just going out and observing and experiencing the social world. Um, you have a lot more of this kind of. Setting down standards for what the discipline should look like and differentiating it from anthropology, psychology, and all the other things that we would want to be not the same as.
0: Oh, okay, that's interesting. Well, so wait, but before was was the work of a scholar basically just like a smart guy and you didn't know what was going on with <laughs> him? It was like a secret sauce, some genius that he was hmm. supposed to project or?
1: Yeah, I I don't think so, because there were still, you know, you, if you were taking Mead's classes, for example, you were taking them in the philosophy department, right? So there already were these different departments. So there was this nascent development of disciplines, but you were going to hear a smart guy talk about his experience of the world, in a sense, or smart woman or whoever. Um, And I, I would emphasize again, you know, he was a philosopher And yet his biggest influence has been in sociology. So there's this moment where it was possible to take philosophy classes like Herbert Bloomer was doing and then teach them as sociology classes and teach them as ideas for the social sciences.
2: I mean, I think it is a really fascinating question about how we get the, what shape disciplines take today, you know, and how there was, how the lines were blurred uh, you know, earlier, one question that does come to mind it's specifically about Mead's engagement with Hawaii is, I mean, are there, mm. are there connections between his conceptualization of his academic work and what was happening in, in Hawaii, the questions of colonization and governance for that space? And then of course his personal relationship with the folks who were very powerful and influential, you know, white folks uh, in, mm. in Hawaii.
0: Can can you preface that answer by also just giving us a little background on how we got to Hawaii and the whole Hawaii story?
1: Yeah. So the first thing to say is most people don't think of me, don't think of Hawaii when they think of mead, right? And I think that that's wrong. (laughs) And if if you want the full story of that, you should um, check it out because I've written about it. Jean-Francois Cote at Montreal has written about it and a few others have written about this more recently. But so the background is... Mead's best friend in college was Henry Castle, and Henry Castle's sister, Helen Castle, would ultimately become Mead's wife. So the two people that he knew best in college and thereafter were the Castles, two um, children of a missionary family, white missionary family that had gone to Hawaii and made a fortune on the production of sugarcane, other fruits and a shipping company. So here, Meade is being introduced kind of secondhand to colonial Hawaii, or at this time, it was still a, a kingdom of Hawaii, um, through his best friends. And he marries into this family and he becomes, um, you know, kind of a member of this family that then travels almost every year. He traveled, Meade traveled 13 times to Hawaii and spent an average of two to three months a year there. So this is a guy who spent many years of his life in some form traveling to and from, talking about, thinking about issues of Hawaii. And this is precisely the period. So we're talking 1880s through Meade dies in 1931, where it's the whole period of American colonization almost. It's the period when the um, native monarchy is thrown overthrown with the help of U.S. military troops. Um, it's run then as a independent republic by these white settler families. It appeals for annexation to the United States government. It becomes a US territory. It's this whole period that we're talking about and Meade's right in the center of of this, seeing all of it unfold. So there's an awful lot going on here. Um, So what was Meade doing? Well, he was um, touring the agricultural conditions on the plantations owned by the castles. He's seeing the native populations who are either marginalized or are being uh, brought in as workers, you know, kind of like, um, almost like, uh, what's the word? Oh, what's the word?
2: I mean, you're not talking about sharecroppers or like indentured servants or anything. Yeah, like, I mean, like, like that. I yeah, mean, we're not talking exactly. like about slaves here. We're not talking about people who are compensated That's for their right. labor, but, but not about compensated about- for their labor, I That's imagine. That's right.
1: We're, we're talking about people who are laborers, but not well-compensated, exactly. And we're also seeing a period of massive immigration to Hawaii from East Asia, from Japan and China, especially up until uh, the early 1880s, when that becomes no longer possible because of U.S. government intervention. Um, but there are, by the time that Mead is aware of Hawaii as a thing, there's a larger population of people who are immigrants from East Asia than there are native Hawaiians in the islands. So there's this just eruption of social issues that he's in the center of. He advocates on behalf of annexation in front of groups in Chicago, in Hawaii, and elsewhere. His uh, family-in-law, his in-laws are kind of the center of this pro-annexation movement, which was, by the way, the progressive position for white progressives at this time. If you thought of yourself as a white progressive, what you wanted to do was colonize Hawaii, which is now I, what, things have changed so much. We we think so much about like sovereignty and and native rights that I think that that's right. It's really strange to think about that as the progressive position. It required me to really think about how is it that me knowing this about Mead changes, you know, the, our thought process. Do we have to recontextualize him? Do we have to think about him as not? You know, you know, he he's sometimes called the radically democratic intellectual. He's the person, he's the Democrat. You can always hold him up as the guy who was like in favor of more democracy. And now we have to rethink that because he's in favor of colonization.
0: So it was, was so wait, progressivism in those days, was it this idea of bringing progress to like backward societies? It was like elevating them from like whatever backwardsness that they live in into some more enlightened western type of type of live, living standard or lifestyle or is that is that the the basic thrust of it? I mean that's
1: it's certainly one of the the central pieces of of progressivism as it applies to places like Hawaii. Um, if you were an, as I said a white american progressive your understanding of this place was a place that needed to be brought up to a standard of of self-governance and the way to ensure that was to annex it was to turn it into an american territory because america was the head of the progressive movement and if you then brought it into that then you would progressivize this this people something like that but mead was also very aware of people who were pointing out that this was having a detrimental effect on the native populations people were losing out on their ways of life, on their, um, you know, their folkways, their, their traditions, their food, their, you know, everything that, that made this society fit together. And he's aware of all of that. And yet he's still in the middle of advocating this. So I just think it's, it requires us to think more of these people as, as people, right, as people with complicated involvements in their social worlds, rather than as just like, Ideals or, or concepts or something.
0: Can you can you think of a, uh, a, a of a story that really stuck with you about Mead's time in Hawaii or or the legacy of it? I
1: mean, the the things that I always go back to is Mead was a an avid mountain climber, and so the best stories of Mead in Hawaii are of him on these mountain hikes. He did them over and over while he was in Hawaii, because I guess he just loved the scenery. He loved the exposure to these, these environments. And he would invariably fall or get injured or whatever. This happened to him something like four times, because you could find it in the newspapers. This was apparently a big no. enough deal that it was covered in the newspapers. Chicago professor, falls on hike. hike. Um, and there are pictures <laughs> for of fourth there. time. Yeah, for fourth time. That's
0: right.
2: <laughs> Chicago um. professor fails to learn lesson.
0: Yeah, exactly. Falls fourth time. Like somebody in Hawaii is like, "What the hell's wrong with this guy?" Right. Anyway, sorry. <laughs>
1: um, and so th- this is just kind of like central to the way that he clearly experienced this place, and not only that, it was clearly central to his introduction to the politics of this of Hawaii. So on these hikes, he's being led around by the local elites, the white ruling class, so to speak, of this place, including people like the um, provincial governors or the territorial governors. Um, and it's this exposure that then gets him to hired, more or less, to be the official delegate to the National Farmland Congress in the United States on behalf of, of Hawaii, a place that he just incidentally knows because of his child, his uh, his um, family, you know, his in-laws. He's now officially representing and telling people to go and farm in Hawaii, right? and providing them with statistics and telling them what farming is like, even though he's never been a farmer.
0: What an odd gig! For yeah, it's an odd money, gig. Or like, why why would you do something like that? Uh, or just I, like do favors? Or
1: I guess it it's was a, a favor. I guess it was a favor to the territorial governor Walter Freer at the time. Um, who you know if your farmland congress is on is in the contiguous united states the continental united states you can't just send any old person from hawaii there right it would cost you too right. much so if mead's already there in chicago you just have him <laughs> as your delegate
0: <laughs> it's, okay that that's more comprehensible as a <laughs> faculty member at cuny that's sort of how it goes it's like yeah, yeah. while you're in that country while can you take there. care of some official business exactly
2: one of the fascinating things about Mead and his kind of profile, how we talk about him today, at least before your book, was that Mead never wrote anything. You know, he he very rarely published. He he just for some reason, you know, it's sort of like publication fright or stage stage fright, although not in his case, not literally. Um, but your book really reveals that he actually had a great deal of uh, writings that were that were published, but also that he had, and I would like to hear you talk about this. He had a lot of experience in what were the most up-to-date kind of scientific methods that he picked up in Germany doing these experiments uh, with with animals, this mm-hmm. whole idea of reaction. he studied reaction times. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think about some of Dewey's stuff with a reflex arc and and that, those sorts of ideas. Um, so I'm just curious about what you can say about Mead the writer and you know Mead the the scholar who actually did have a lot of uh, work published even in he was published in ajs yeah uh, right i mean so the two this is really a two-parter one okay so tell us about what Mead did publish and secondly what can you tell us about why we think Mead didn't publish anymore <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah so i think there's actually three parts because there's the research part also yeah um yeah so let me start with that one actually because so the research thing one of the things that i try to expose in this in becoming Mead is that Mead was not someone who just invented these ideas out of nowhere. And he didn't just invent them from his kind of casual interactions um, in society. It's not like he came up with these ideas just because he happened to be a member of society. He had a whole you know, training as a, as a graduate student and elsewhere, early career, um, doing psychophysical experiments. So he, in labs in Germany and then at the University of Michigan where he's hired to take over the psychology lab, he is, as you said, doing reaction time experiments. So he's trying to determine how long it takes people to perceive differences of time or or sound or weight or whatever, Um, these kind of very classical 19th century psychology experiments. And throughout all of this, he's also realizing that no matter how well you calibrate your your equipment, no matter how rigorous you are, you can't get rid of the fact that there is this kind of social interpretive process going on here. And I think that that's also the insight that, as you said, Dewey has when he starts thinking about the reflex arc, how there's, we have to ground all of this in a kind of action process or a social action process. And it's no coincidence that it's the two of them there at Michigan in the 1890s who start to figure this out together. Right. This is where functional psychology becomes a, a school of thought. This is where um, Dewey and Mead invent this new branch of pragmatism that then gets carried into the social sciences. Right? They have such an influence basically because of this, um, because of the problems of doing psychological experiments. It's a really kind of core aspect of this that we often ignore. And he's cutting up brain specimens, and he's doing experiments on cats, and there's all there's a whole bunch of stories of Mead doing this stuff in the 1890s. So there's that. Um, But then on the writing side of things, so there is this one volume, the selected writings, which has something like, I don't know, 25 of his published essays. But if you look at, at a comprehensive bibliography of Mead and you account for things like all of the proceedings volumes and editorials and all of the other things that he did, you find that that list is well over a hundred items. So he's someone who wrote an awful lot and not not always for publication. In fact, he was often writing for himself, it seems. That's why at his death, they found so many of these kind of manuscripts that were half written because he just seemed to constantly be writing to think out ideas. Um, And he was often writing at the Behest of people around him. So someone would say, "I need a an essay on social psychology. Can you write this for my next journal edition?" Right, and he would just be like, "Okay, apparently." we would just say, "Yeah, let's do it."
0: <laughs> yeah, no problem. I got it. I got it. Anybody need a medical article or? Uh... <laughs>
1: Which sounds a little flippant, but you know, this, yeah. <laughs> because as Dan was saying, Dan Morrison, um, the the image we have of him is as someone who we needed mind, self, and society. Which was published after his death, because he never wrote anything in his life, which is of course not true, as I just said. And yeah. so we the, the way that we get to that place is it is clear Meade had was continually trying to revise his own ideas. So I think he had trouble giving, giving up on ideas. There yeah. are I try to document a few cases in my book where people like John Dewey noticed that. Mead would be perpetually late on turning in articles because he was never quite done with them he was never satisfied enough with the wording of them so this is where I think this myth gets started of Mead as a kind of diffident writer Mead as someone who couldn't really get the words out or something like that there's some truth to that but that didn't stop him from actually having things published Now it is true also that he never wrote a book length. Um, anything in his life and any attempt that was made during his life to try to publish something that was a book attributed to him was he was always trying to get rid of it trying to make it not happen you can see cases of that in his life why i think that it it stems from the same like i don't want a system that's like done i want to be always rethinking these ideas able to kind of add to them and if I have a book that's like my philosophy, then it's done. It's over, it's, it's a system, you know, it's self enclosed. And that prevents it from being novel and engaging or, or changeable or something like that. So, yeah. So then the last element is how do we end up with me as this person that we think of as not a writer? And it's people like Dewey after his death giving eulogies saying Mead never wrote anything. And then that becomes this idea that maybe we need to memorialize Mead. And in order to memorialize Mead, we kind of have to build up this myth that like there isn't enough Mead out there yet. So we need to publish something of Mead's. And so there's this whole kind of process that, that kind of builds on itself where all of a sudden we end up with, oh, well, there, now we think there is no Mead and we need a Mead and here's the Mead that we can create after his death. So I think it's all part of the uh, process of, of creating a legacy for him.
0: It's like, like the typical jazzing up the book by uh, the, <laughs> right. the only one of its kind or whatever. First of all, I'm sure there are a lot of a, a lot of the more uh, lightly published among us are probably pretty disappointed to hear that, that Mead was prolific because you're like, oh, rats. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, you can hold on to the fact that he never wrote a book in his life and that... <laughs> that he never actually had a graduate degree. So there's that too.
2: Oh, nice. <laughs> I mean, one of the things that does strike me about Mead is, you know, his whole, his whole thing is about process, right? It's about ongoing, yeah. unfolding lines of action. And it strikes me that it makes sense that if your whole, the, the core of your idea is things are never finished, right? And that, that's part of the pragmatic move also is just to say we're sort of moving towards you know increasingly good good relations between you know this part of society and that part of society or this bit of social reform and this kind of outcome right and so you know my understanding of pragmatism is no one would say okay we're finished with pragmatism right we're finished with um, our ongoing adjustments to changes in the unfolding of history right um And so I know it it humanizes me, and to me anyway, to hear you say, like, you know, he didn't want to let go of these, the very core nub of his idea, which is that, you know, things change and we will continue to change, and that we're all in processual relationship, like inside ourselves, and also in relation to our, you know, our our neighborhoods, our communities, our state, our, you know, uh, our time and place. Yeah, I think I don't know if you agree with that, but
0: but that that. uh, that helps me think think it through.
2: It certainly does.
0: I think so. So, so why does Mead matter today in sociology? It's a great, great backstory. You know, classic, classic guy. Lots, lots of color. But why does he matter in all seriousness to sociology today?
1: Yeah. So some classics age better than others, I think. And one of the yeah. things that, and we're continually trying to figure that out. We're reappraising over the course of time who who we need to look back to. And in a sense, the argument that I and others have been making is we need to look back to Mead not just because the social self is an interesting idea or something like that, but also because we have forgotten that he wrote about a whole bunch of other stuff that's still of relevance to us and maybe even more relevant to us nowadays. So things like um, he wrote about the co-constitution between organisms and their environment or between society and environment well before that was a general topic that we now think about, environmental sociology or something like that. And some people have started to really use his ideas um, that build on the notion of the social self, but also incorporate the environment as social objects to be oriented toward. Right Now we have to take into account the role of the environment around us. Right? That's a really interesting way of reinterpreting me. But also things like, Um, You know, digital media allows us to think about self-presentation, the social self in a different way, but also if we have issues with deliberative democracy, Mead is one of the first people to really articulate what does democracy look like if it's not just a model of society, but an ongoing way of communicating and, and understanding one another, right, along with Jane Addams and a few others, John Dewey of that generation. And he's someone who is now being brought into the literature on embodied cognition, which is a very hot topic in um, psychological sciences. Um, and he's being brought into work on material cultures like archaeology. I just started to discover this for the last couple of decades, especially in Britain. There have been reinterpretations of classical American pragmatists as relevant to contemporary archaeology. And I guess the way to think about that is how our material remains are not, they don't have their meanings contained within themselves. They have their meanings in relation to the uses that we make of them, in relation to the kind of contextual interpretations we make of them. And Meads someone who was saying that a hundred years ago. right So over and over, I think what we're finding is new ways in which classics like Mead become relevant. And maybe the last thing that I'll say on this, um, is coming back to the kind of Borovoy point that we made before, which is if we are looking for a more engaged social science, then maybe we can look back to models of what that looked like, what has and hasn't worked, what you know we do want and don't want from the past of our own disciplines. So if Mead was an engaged social scientist or something like it, then maybe we can look back to him for what cues we can take.
0: I have a question for you. It's not on me specifically, yeah. but on a lot of classical theorists. Sometimes, you know, I, 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 this is more in, in terms of Marx. I, I often wonder if a lot of the classical theorists whose uh, works we mine for ideas and we celebrate for, like, their theoretical minds are, have really attained that position because they, uh, they had a certain social status in their era, era. like they were prominent in their time like would marx still be big if he uh, wasn't uh you know wasn't part of uh you know the the uh the communist movement of his day or the socialist movement of his day right uh would we would we still uh w- would we still celebrate him that much and 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 sometimes i wonder what what's your opinion on this do the do you think that the works carry people's reputation mm. in and of themselves or do we uh, does the success or the stature in their era sort of uh, make them worth studying? And so we we mine their works to uh, get a sense of the success that produced those works, like the worldly success that that led to those works. Does, does that does that question make sense? Yeah, uh, it's always. a
1: my, my answer is maybe not going to be satisfactory because I think it's going to be kind of either a both or neither kind of um, uh,
0: Typical scholarly yeah, answer. <laughs> yeah. But let me try to explain
1: what I mean. Um, it, I think it's neither the works nor the context that is what we are interested in. We are interested in both of those things, but we're interested in the stuff in our present. So this is, I'm going to put a little aside here that says, this is me also thinking through some of Mead's ideas that we'll come to in a second. But um, we are oriented toward the practical problems of our contemporary moment, right? Whatever we are interested in because they're problems of our society. And so when we look back to these classic authors, we're interested in the ideas, we're interested in the context, we're interested in whatever we can take as tools that help us understand ourselves, ultimately. and. Yeah, so as I said, that's kind of an either or neither or both kind of response. But I think that that's, in a sense, the more kind of honest or at least pragmatic response to this way of thinking.
0: Truthfully, it's a good answer. It's the best <laughs> answer possible, right? Like that makes complete sense to me rather than some simplistic either or.
2: <laughs> yeah, I know. I guess I'm just personally really fascinated by this question about how you know, these classical authors really speak to contemporary moments. I'm teaching the social, the, the one social theory class that's taught mm-hmm. at my university right now. And I have them read just little, little pieces of Du Bois and the souls of black folk. Right. And the student, they're just, they're blown away because they read into this, this work that was published, I think in 1903. Don't quote me on that. Yeah, no um, but, uh, then quote me in 1903. <laughs> uh, this 1903 text and they're saying he's talking about microaggressions. He's talking about, you know, what has happened with, you know, not really not, he's not talking about police killings, but he's talking about the social dynamics that certainly um, make police killings thinkable, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, make them understandable. Uh Um, And so in my context, I'm, I'm often thinking about, you know, how can we, um, how can we apply these, these theorists and really, you know, write to our student newspapers and say, hey, you know, here's a, here's a sociologist who, you know, was thinking about um, how, you know, social statuses and positions and hierarchies, you know, lead us to, to be uh, ignorant or blind to these forces that um, our fellow citizens are, are experiencing. Um, and I guess I, I'm really just fascinated and me to sort of a model along with Du Bois, right? Um, to to bringing that kind of scholarship to to the public in a really accessible way, it sounds like he, you know, he was he was a, a an active you know researcher in the field in the sense that he was like going to the settlement houses. He was you know um, observing the life of new Americans in Chicago, and mm-hmm. he's trying to um, help other people understand sort of. The origin of those folks, you know, how they're understanding their society they've been dropped into, um, and then, you know, and then trying to sort of plot a way forward. Um, I think there are issues with that, right? Um, sure. And I guess that's 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 the thing that I'm curious about. You know, to what extent was was didn't did Me take this sort of like noblesse oblige kind of perspective when he was talking to these audiences in Chicago, or to what extent was he? Uh, was he trying to, um, you know, do something else, right, um, mm-hmm. with their, with those populate, with those groups, you know?
1: Yeah. So let me say a couple of things first. I I wanted to think a little bit about you know teaching a a classical theory class or something like that, um, and I have the same experience, which is one of the central things I I often find myself having to do, kind of necessarily. So is explaining why this stuff is relevant. And so if a lot of the effort that we have to undertake, why are we teaching this segment of Marx or this segment of Du Bois or this segment of whatever? A lot of what we have to do is do the work already of articulating what do we take from them? What is the problem that they speak to of our society? right? So it's already this kind of pragmatic um, orientation toward these authors. And for me, it's very much connected with things like, why did you select this set of readings to expose to your students, right? Why are these the things they need to know? And parentheses, not a whole bunch of other things, because the late 19th, early 20th century, when we're teaching, you know, we're teaching this period as the classical period, it's um, a whole bunch of other stuff was written, right? That we don't want them to prioritize, right? There's a whole bunch of, you know, just to take the most obvious examples, there's a whole bunch of like eugenic stuff that like we don't assign in classical theory, although in the early 20th century that was thought of as central to social science in many ways. So you know we're doing this work of interpreting and reinterpreting continually, and so I, I just think that that's really a central thing we should acknowledge and do more self-consciously, self-reflectively, um, and, and yeah, maybe that's more. That's all that can be said there, but.
0: Although on the eugenics thing, like I don't know what the value would be of sure. mining their text, right? Like just the mere fact that they exist is probably sufficient. You're like, okay, this is what they believed, and
1: but then, uh, right? But then we don't want to forget that that existed and it was a blind alley, right? Right. We don't want us to go down this route in all but name again, and then realize later, oh, whoops, we did it, we did it again, right? Um, although we are, that's that's very fair. Yeah. yeah, well, that's a whole other aside we can argue about whether we're already doing that or not, but
0: we want to encourage that, let's say. Uh, Or we can avoid it at all. I would personally find it very daunting to engage a hundred year old, you know, piece of work that everybody in your discipline has read. How do you find something new? Like, what do you, how do you, what do you do? So uh, like to, to somebody who wants to take your path, wants to uh, dig into, uh, classical theory and enhance our understanding of it. Like, what do you do? How do you go about doing this? What's your method here?
1: My method is try it and see what there is. So, the, you know, it, again, I don't know. Maybe that's too pragmatic in a sense. But, you know, <laughs> the first thing that I do, if I'm really interested in some topic, I try to find out what are the what are the archival materials? What are the primary sources that are there? And I just start reading some of them. This is true, Mm. even of the Mead project. This started as a class paper where I needed to have some kind of a paper on a theorist. And my advisor at the time was Andrew Abbott at Chicago. And he said, you know, there are these Mead papers in the archives. Why don't you just go see what there is? And of course that raised way more questions than it had answers in it. And that was the whole start of this. But anyway, the point is just go and see. And maybe that's not a very encouraging thing in some respects. let me say a couple things about that. One is, I recognize that that is daunting. Um, yes, and that there's no guarantee of success. So in that way, it's not a it's not like a recipe for getting the right answer or anything like that. But what's so exciting, if you can get into historical sources, if you can get into archives, it is endlessly engrossing. Every new page that you turn, is you just never know what you're going to find. And all of a sudden, you're going to find the thing you never knew you needed to know, but now becomes central to what you want to know about next, right? It's this process of just discovery at its most basic that scientists and historians have in common in this sense. Um, I, I just find it endlessly
0: fascinating. So you're saying just get into the source materials, like identify where they are and just start reading. Yeah. Uh, just immerse yourself is that the piece of advice is that the advice you're giving more or less
1: that's the advice i mean as i said it's not a quick fix it's not the way to get the answer fast but it's the way to get really interested
0: and and then what uh, like how how do you like how do you go about doing a project like this it's so foreign to (laughs) someone like me who's a survey researcher right like you're faced with the sea of evidence and you're like oh here's an 80 year span of a person's life like how, how do you how do you zero in? How do you know what to zero in on? How do you know how to organize this? Like what's I mean, what's it, the techniques? Yeah,
1: the techniques are things like timelines and spreadsheets, and you know the things that allow you to then organize and compare and contrast. Um, but so that on that more kind of basic level, but ultimately it's guided by what it's guided by the literature, it's guided by your interests, it's guided by what are the gaps, what are the things that aren't known where where are you led in your line of questioning? So in that sense, there isn't the kind of pre-established route for these kinds of things. And maybe that's generally true of working in primary sources because kind of by definition, you, you don't really know what it is until you've found it.
0: It's a far cry from us hypothesis testers. You know? <laughs> it's, uh, it's a whole other thing.
2: But I actually hear a lot of resonance with you know the tradition that I'm familiar with, and I came up came up in, which is the Anselm Strauss mm. grounded theory kind of kind of method, which is you know you you come into the field with a set of orienting you know vague questions or a set of interests, and then you see what's there. You know you ask questions, you hang out with people, you write a lot. You know you you sort of try to tease out you know, what do I think is going on? Why did this thing happen? You do these critical memos, critical incident memos, mm-hmm. maybe. Um, you sort of start to track patterns of interaction over, over time. And, you know, you're not so much guided by, okay, so this, this theory says this thing it has these implications. I'm going to go test to see whether those really exist in the, in the world or not. Um, but you do get a more, again, we're going to bring up process. You do get a more processual uh, action oriented and meaning and, and richly meaningful um, set of data that you can you can then then analyze so i i mean i think there are some commonalities with some other other um, methods that that you know i've used in that and that folks are probably familiar with mm-hmm. um i you know anselm strauss is another person who has been you know memorialized there's a shrift uh, and then he has a whole line of students. My mentor, Monica Casper, was one of his last, if not his last student, um, at UCSF. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I I'm one of those people who like really enjoys figuring out where I sort of sit in the in the lineage and all of these different different mm-hmm. folks. Um,
1: I would just react to this idea that uh, there's a lot of commonality bec- between kind of like field research or something like that and. Um, archival research. And, and I think that that's not incidental. I, I, in some ways, I treat an archive as a kind of field. Um, and I do a lot of that same articulation of, or kind of iterative process of trying to figure out what it is that I'm after. Um, and, you know, contemporary works like the, the work, um, who did that? Um, Timmermans and Tavori, Tavori and Timmermans the, on the abductive analysis, they explicitly say this kind of field research is also very much like historical research. They try to draw a lot of those connections. Just one other aside, um, Anselm Strauss was one of the people who helped construct this um, contemporary view we have of Mead in the 1950s and 60s. He was the person starting to put together readers of sections of Mind, Self, and Society, right? So it would be little excerpts from Mind, Self, and Society that now are kind of the, the sections we all have to know, the notion of the I and the me, the self and the the body, right? Those kinds of distinctions. He's the person who's like quite literally putting together the the readers.
0: Yeah, I got a copy <laughs> right behind me. <laughs> so what, one last question uh, before we go on, and this might be great for both of you, uh, seeing how you're both very theoretically inclined. If you were to give advice to an early career or grad student who is really interested in pursuing, you know, a career that is focused on historical and classical theory. This is something that a lot of us in our schools were discouraged from doing, uh, you know, as opposed to going out and getting that NSF grant Mm -hmm. or whatever. What advice or encouragement would you offer like-minded earlier career people?
1: I would say convince people that you can teach theory classes. Because, you know, if you're thinking about this as a very practical, um, you know, like how do you get a job from the work that you do in grad school, the way you get a job is you convince people that you can teach the kinds of things that, that they need taught, that you can research the things that will excite graduate students, right? So you have to do that work. And and I think that that was actually hard. I think it's hard for all of us um, that do this kind of work to do that, to, you know, like in some ways, I think of myself as a historical sociologist, and that's not going to get me many job offers. But teaching a theory class, every department has to have at least one theory class taught, and maybe that's a little too practical of advice. But that's that's where my mind went. Convince people you can teach theory.
2: No, I think that's I think that's great advice. Um, I think the other thing. I mean, I'm brought to mind a, a friend of mine wrote a dissertation that she recently published in into a book and it's about a uh, a body of water in Russia. And so not a topic that you know I didn't I didn't uh, you know describe it in the sexiest way, but not a topic that is just jumps out at people's like, "Oh yeah, that's exactly relevant to like yeah. the t- contemporary <laughs> debates in American sociology." Mm-hmm. Right? She did ethnography. She went there and she like hung out with the people and lived in this giant, you know, apartment building. Anyway, the point being, um, she had a project that was unique, that where the contribution was, you know, was clear, even though it came from a, maybe at a out of left field. But also, she, I think she did a great job of cultivating relationships both among her faculty, this was at Vanderbilt, but also mm-hmm. across the discipline. So she was very, this is not a careerist or like overly strategic thing, but she, she was just one of those people who took the risk of talking to folks, of sharing ideas, you know, was a really good academic citizen and she was able to get a tenure stream job at a very well-known university. Um, and I, I just think, you know, this business is definitely built in part on on relationships, on, on mm-hmm. showing up and being a good citizen, uh, you know, not stabbing people in the back you know just being being the kind of person that you would want as a colleague and showing that you have those kinds of relational skills um, early in your career can be you know can be helpful I mean nothing is going to guarantee you an academic job I don't care what you do or where you go uh, you know and today's conditions are um, are bad um, but you know I think that that said I do think there are things that even with a dissertation that maybe doesn't scream like, the next big a wave of sociological thought um you can you can do things that help increase your you know your viability long term in the career yeah. yeah
0: that's great that's all great advice i mean on the on the first piece of advice know that you can t- tell people you can teach theory it's like the the social running a social department is like a business you got roles to fill and a lot of it is probably i was i was telling a a junior colleague that getting a 10-year track job is like uh, getting married you really just have to sucker one person into it and and you're good so you know it's just a question of maybe stumbling on on somebody who a department who has a retiring theorist and holds theory in high esteem and they just want to sort of keep that legacy going I I, I wonder on on Dan Morrison's uh, thing about the networking. It can't be the networking, but sometimes it's just the people who network are just genuinely interested and engaging. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're just curious and they like talking to other academics. Like I find that that's part of the reason why I like being an academic. You just get to meet smart people and have sort of interesting chats with them. And even if you don't connect to the right people, it's just a great. Disposition, like when you're on the other side of a hiring committee and someone's like, you know, engaging, has great stories, whatever. You're like, I'd like to hear more from this person. Like, what a what a live mind, you know, what an engaging mind. So, could be good. Yeah. Anyhow, it was a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much for uh, coming on today.
1: Yeah, thanks again for having me. This is a it's been a great conversation. Thanks so much.
0: You've been listening to The Annex, a sociology podcast. Thank you to Daniel Huebner from UNC Greensboro. His book is Becoming Mead, The Social Process of Academic Knowledge with the University of Chicago Press. Thank you, uh, Dan Hubner, And also a very, very special thank you to Dan Morrison from Abilene Christian University. Uh, it was great co-hosting with you. And what a super topic. Thank you for this. We're on the web, the AnnexPodcast.com, on Twitter at Sociannex, and on Facebook, the Annex Sociology Podcast. Music by Lena Orsa. Uh, the Annex is a production of the Queen's Podcast Lab. For more, visit us at QueenspodcastLab.org. I'm Joseph Cohen. Thanks for listening.